It was September the 10th, 2013, when a young lady in Polk County, Florida, took her own life after a case of cyberbullying. And some of you, when I start giving some details of this particular story, may remember it. It's almost cold-hearted to say, but it's true, that it didn't make national news or make waves through social media because a young person took their life. And I say that not to be cold-hearted, because that happens, sadly, often enough that if we reported it every time nationally, that's all we'd be talking about. But it's because of something that happened in the immediate aftermath of that tragic event that at least kept it going for a while on social media, Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. Because in the immediate aftermath of that tragic event, the local sheriff and police department met in the school with some of the parents at a town hall meeting, we might call it, as well as some people in the school and just talked about, as you might expect, some safety measures, some things to know, things to expect. And what had led to this young lady's death is nothing short of cruel. In fact, one of the girls who was arrested for the bullying on her own personal Facebook page, and yes, I have cleaned this up for this setting, said, I know that Rebecca took her own life, and frankly, I don't care. And in the aftermath of that, the police began to meet with parents and tell them what you would expect. Here are some safety things. But the sheriff, after one of those, again, we might call them town hall type meetings, met with the local media who wondered what was said inside the room and and he said what you might expect. He said, you know, we talked to them about the fact that parents need to be listening to their children. They need to be open to their children. No conversation needs to be off topic. And again, you think, well, that, that's good that they heard that. But how did that make national news? That's not what really kept it going. What kept it going was something else the sheriff said in that post-meeting interview. And it was something that I think all of us know. But for some reason, when he said it, it resonated. It was reported in some newspaper articles, online articles, and it began to make the rounds on social media. And it kept going for days when he said, I told the parents, our children don't need friends. They need parents. This lesson this morning is not based on that one particular sentence or that one particular event. But that's going to serve as sort of the jumping off point for where we are going. The, the idea of what does it mean to make sure that we are raising children, as the Bible tells us, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We're calling our lesson this morning, How to Build a Home and Not a House. And we're calling it that for a couple of reasons. One is this. You don't want me giving you advice on how to build a house. Just trust me. A couple of weeks ago, we built a, a play set, a fort in the backyard for our kids. Thankfully, Leah has a dad who knows what. Did you know there are different kinds of saws? That's amazing. I, I didn't realize this. I, I thought you took wood, you took nails, you hammered together, and all of a sudden, boom, it's a house. That's, that's the way this works, right? And the, the running joke around the house became, Adam, what are you doing? I'm just holding the wood. That's it. He can take care of the sawing, the screwing, the nailing. I did a little bit, and that's the part that we're having to fix now. But, but I, you don't want me giving you advice on, on that sort of thing. But the other reason we're calling this how to build a home and not a house is because 
A home can be in any kind of house. It could be a one-room apartment. It could be a palatial mansion. It could be what is often referred to as a starter home, really probably, probably called a starter house. Or it could be a giant place. But it's what's on the inside. And the relationships on the inside that make all the difference. Not just in this world, but in eternity. If I had a one-shot lesson to encourage parents, number one, But also any of you who encourage parents, which, by the way, is everyone in who is not a parent. This lesson is it. You may think, well, this is a lesson on parenting and my kids are grown and gone or we've never had kids or I'm not even married yet. But trust me, you have influence over those of us who are trying. Trust me, we need you to listen to a lesson like this to give us encouragement when you see us doing well and discouragement when you see us not doing well. So don't turn your ears off. What does it take to build a home the way God would have it to be? Well, if you're going to build any kind of structure, you start with the foundation. And so as we're building a home and not a house, we need to remember that the foundation is always Jesus Christ. And you knew this was coming, but that's where it all begins. That's what all of this stems from. Everything else we're going to talk about for the next several minutes must stem from this because Christ must be the foundation. Now, I know he was talking about the church, but you recall that we're told in the New Testament that no one can lay any other foundation than the one that has been laid, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's talking about the church specifically. We cannot build a church on anyone other than Christ. But, folks, the same is true of a Christian home. You cannot build a Christian home on anything else other than Jesus Christ. And that's why we read a few moments ago, Psalm 127, which begins that famous phrase, unless the Lord builds the house. Well, it's a vain effort to try to build it. They labor in vain who build it. But how do we do that? How do we make sure that we are building on the foundation of Christ? Have you ever noticed That every one of the relationships that's mentioned in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, the passages we always go to, it seems, when we talk about the home, all of them have a connection back to Jesus Christ. For example, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents In the I wonder why Paul did that. Husbands, wives, parents, fathers, children, everyone involved in this conversation, there is some connection to Christ. It's because Paul, who, by the way, himself was not married and did not have children, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, somehow, quote unquote, somehow he knew the only way to make a home what it needs to be is everything connects to Jesus Christ. Everything. As a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, even as a child. The foundation is Jesus Christ. But here's our problem. Sometimes we want to build our homes on Jesus Christ and. What I mean by that is we we know this fact. None of us in here go, "Ah, that's not true. All of us go, "Ah, that's true. But but I want to build our home on, on Christ and something else. 
Now, again, I'm not the expert on building stuff, but it's kind of hard to have two foundations, isn't it? That's not the easiest thing in the world to pull off. But how many of us want to build our home on Christ and something else? There are too many homes where the foundation is at least trying to be happiness. I just want everybody to be happy. I just want to be happy. Isn't that what all this is about? Last time I checked, it's not. We're told in the New Testament to rejoice, but we're not ever told specifically to be happy. I am not in right, outright, upright, downright happy all the time. I'm sorry, but I'm not. But I can be joyful all the time. And when I'm trying just to seek my own happiness all the time, then probably someone else is not happy. So what about them? It's not about building on happiness. It's not about building our home even on our children. Do you realize that in America, in fact, North America, one of the most common years of marriage for divorce is year 20? And the reason is the couple gets married, they have children very early on, and they raise those kids for 18 or 19 years. The kids go away to college, and the, the parents look at one another, and they say, who are you? Because for 18 or 19 years, all they've done is run their kids from this to this, and everything's been centered around the children instead of around the marriage first and then the children, ultimately around Christ first and then the marriage and then the children. And too many homes are built on the children. There are a lot of homes that are trying to build on things like self, what can I get out of this marriage? Aren't you thankful? In that picture of Ephesians chapter 5 of Christ and the church, you never see Jesus saying, what can I get out of this? He said, what can I give? We can name anything else, but the fact of the matter is everything else we named would be an incorrect foundation. Ultimately, if I want to build a home, the foundation, everything else must stand upon Jesus Christ. Without that, it's useless to try to build what God would have for a home. But I also understand enough about building to know this. that when you're building a house, you have to have at least four walls. Now, some people are better at PowerPoint than I am. Just picture those as walls instead of columns. Okay, there are some people who could probably make this like 3D and like one of the walls is probably halfway across the auditorium or something. But just picture that those are four walls instead of four columns. Okay, but if you're going to build a house, you've got to have at least four columns, four things to build to make the structure stand. Wall number one is the wall of a covenant. They're the simplest words, maybe, that we will ever say in our life. But they mean more than far many people, far too many people even recognize. They are the words, I do. When we say those words, that is a covenant. We are, as it were, signing our names on a covenant. And I believe that one of the reasons that we see that in marriage is because marriage was God's idea. Genesis tells us that very early on where he brings the man to the woman and God, if you please, performs the first wedding ceremony. And God makes marriage a covenant. And God is a covenant keeping God. You think about the Old Testament covenant. How many times in the Old Testament did God tell the people of Israel, if you will do this, I'll be with you and protect you and do all those amazing things. If you don't, I won't. It's a covenant. You, I have my side. You have your side. Which side ever moved? It wasn't God. He made the covenant. He was faithful to the covenant. And God, when he tells us in his word to make covenants, tells us to keep covenants. Will our yes be yes and our no be no, Jesus said. Anything beyond that is of the evil one or is from evil, 
one translation has. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And when a couple stands before a, a preacher or a judge or whomever, and they say those words that we sometimes you know, flippantly repeat in, in a wedding ceremony, they're making a covenant that really means something. And sickness and health means something. It means I do. When everybody's footloose and fancy free. And it means I do when I have to dress her in the morning. Because she can't move. For richer or for poorer means something. It means I do when I get that bonus at work and I say, we can finally take the vacation of a lifetime. Kids, we can finally go that place you've always wanted to go. The not so happiest place. Home. You know, we, we can finally make that trip. And it also means I do when I come home with a pink slip and I wonder where our next meal is coming from. Forsaking all others means just that. It means that there is nothing that I will ever do physically or emotionally to move myself toward anyone other than the one to whom I said I do. Those words mean something. And we live in a time where covenants or contracts are so easily broken, forgotten, overlooked, that we sometimes in our marriages and homes have forgotten that marriage is a covenant. Folks, it's no wonder that Malachi 2.16 tells us that God, depending on the translation you have, God hates divorce or God will protect those who are the innocent one in a divorce. Depends on which translation you have. It doesn't make any difference what the translation is. The point of the matter is that God says, I hate it when people break a covenant and I will protect those who are innocent. When the covenant is broken. You want to build a Christian home. You build a wall of a covenant. Not just some promise. Wall number two. Is the wall of trust. When I leave my house every day. My wife should have every reason to believe. That all throughout the day. I am thinking my relationship with God. My relationship to my family and my work. And that's all. And I should have every reason to believe that she is doing the same thing. And everything that we do in our homes should be to the in intent of building that level of trust. To where there's never any reason to question what is he not just doing, but what is he thinking? What is she not just doing, but what is she thinking? If every time my wife walks in the room, I'm turning the channel on the television, doesn't she have a reason to wonder what's he watching? What's he thinking about? Who's he looking at? What's he considering here? There should never be anything that would break trust. And I thought this was a lesson on parenting. It is. Because your kids need that. Your kids need the security of knowing that mom and dad, while not everything is perfect all the time, they trust one another. And it doesn't matter if one is a thousand miles away on a business trip. The trust is still just as solid and just as real and just as deep. Wall number two is trust. Wall number three is the wall of service. Here's that whole relationship of Christ and the church brought back into the picture. There is to be submission and service in the home. And by the way, this is where children learn best to be godly servants is when they see mom and dad serving one another. And parents, here's where I need to focus on us a little bit. 
Yes, we need to serve our children, quote unquote, but only to what is to their ultimate best interest. Did you catch how I worded that? Only what is to their ultimate best interest. Buying them everything in the world is not their ultimate best interest. It's not wrong to have stuff, but it's buying them everything in the world is not their ultimate best interest. Taking them everywhere, having them involved in every last little activity. There's a book. I have not read it, so I can't recommend it. I want it. It's my, I think I've got an Amazon wish list. Christmas idea. Um, but if not, uh, it was written by a, a family uh, psychologist. And the name of the book is It's Your Child, Not a Gerbil. Now, let that one sink in for a second. How many of our kids are running and running and running and running and running and running and running? And our job, we think, is just to keep feeding, feeding them so they can just keep running and running and running and running and running. It's your kid, not a gerbil. Your ultimate best interest is that foundation. And that's only seen when I serve that ultimate best interest. When I make sure that our home is God centered, is it wrong to play sports or be involved in the band? No, I'm not saying that at all. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, if that's where we think we are serving our kids best, is doing all of that, we're not. Because we're not serving their ultimate best interest, first and foremost. What's primary? But also, we serve because we serve one another. We serve in the homes. Husbands, if we're going to love our wives the way Christ loved the church, we've got to remember how that verse continues. And gave himself for her, the service. Wives, if you're going to respect your husband, Ephesians 5.33, the way the church is supposed to respect Christ, guess what's there as well? Service. We serve Christ. We talk about it all the time. We have worship services. We even use the word without even thinking about often what it means. There's service that goes both ways. The third wall is service. Wall number four. Is the wall of community. Commu- I'm a guy. You talk about stuff. All right. The wall of communication. It was a book several years ago. Written, written by a man named H. Norman Wright. When it was originally published, it was called Communication, the Key to Your Marriage. And I would think that's a long enough and good enough title. But a couple of years later, a few years later, they re-released the book. I think they had another chapter or something. And they expanded the title to this, Communication, Key to Your Marriage, The Secret to True Happiness. Now, that's a pretty lofty goal for a book title. But I think it gets to the idea of what it means to have real communication. And you think about the way that God communicates with us through his word. Does God speak to us through his word about some surface level stuff? Yes. So and so went from here to there. They travel from this place to that place or the armies of Israel attacked this city. I mean, is that stuff important? Yes, it's in Scripture, but it's surface level stuff. It's just telling where people move to or how this person came to be in that location or whatever. But is that all God ever talks about? Oh, no. Through his word, God speaks to the deepest things of our hearts and our souls. God is going to tell us things we are doing right and things we are doing wrong that hit us as deep as it possibly can in our lives. That's the standard for the communication in our home. It is okay at times to talk about surface level stuff. Those things have to happen. Bills have to be paid. Kids do have to be taken to 
the dentist or to the ball game. Sometimes there are surface level things that just have to be talked about. But if that's all we're ever talking about, that's not communication ultimately. Remember what that police officer said at the beginning of our lesson? We need to allow our kids to be open with us. If I am ever too busy for my child to open up their heart to me, that's not their problem, it's mine. And if I ever think that what they're, what's deep in their mind is not all that deep, and right now it may not be, frankly, it is to them, and that matters. Now, some of you are looking at that, and you're going, Adam, I don't know who outlined this sermon for you, but you missed the most obvious one. I mean, come on. I know I, I get the foundation of Jesus Christ, and I get that these other things are important, but you forgot love. I mean, wouldn't that be the easiest wall to build as far as outlining a sermon? Wouldn't that I mean, come on. You obviously threw this thing together and then thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll throw love in there somewhere. No, I no. How many letters are in the word love? Four. How many walls do we need to build? Four. Every one of the walls is love. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and tell me you don't see those four things found. How do I build real love in a home? I keep my promises. I keep my word. How do I build love in my home? I build trust every way I possibly can. How do I build love in my home? I put others first. That's what agape love really is. Others-centered love. We talked about Wednesday night in the short devotional. How do I build real love in my home? I'm willing to open up about things and listen about things. There's communication. Love is all over this thing. You cannot build a home without love, but it's love that's in action. It's love that's others-centered always. And so we have a foundation. We have four walls. But I hate to tell you this, folks. Sometimes it's going to rain. And so sometimes you need to cover your head. And the only way to cover your, the head of your home is in prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 still tells us to pray without ceasing. We looked at that in our Bible class this morning for a few moments. The covering is prayer. We must protect our homes from the forces of this world. Christians believe in prayer. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But the, the foremost place that should be seen is in our homes. And I believe that there are at least two ways to pray in our homes. We pray with our families and we pray for our families. We pray with our families. Many of us pray around meals. And that's great. But as families get busier and sometimes our meals are more scattershot, we're not really together. Sometimes even that goes by the wayside. It's a great tradition and we need to continue it. But prayer should be there always. Before everybody shuffles off in the morning. Before we go to bed at night. When just a situation arises, when there's a decision to be made, we pray with our families. But we also pray for our families. Every member of a family praying for every other member of the family will make an unbelievable difference. And specifically, when, when I go before God's throne in my private prayers, am I taking my wife and my children specifically by name? Am I taking what, what's on their heart right now that I know about? Am I praying for the wisdom that I will lead and I will do what needs to be done best in the home? The wisdom that God has told us he will give to us if we'll ask it in faith. Am I praying for those things for my family? We pray with we pray for our homes need to be covered in prayer. Satan is our enemy. First Peter five, verse eight tells us he is best put at bay when we are communicating regularly, deeply and fervently 
with the Lord. If your home is not what it needs to be, may I suggest that maybe the problem is a roof problem. And it needs to be some time spent in prayer. We've got a foundation. We've got four walls. We've got we've got a roof. But I hear so many people from time to time say we live in really dangerous times. And that's true. And so I want to suggest spending a little extra money and put in a security system. We live in different times from the times in which a lot of you grew up, you know, never locked our homes, never locked our houses. Just, you know, to hear some of you talk, you have hundred dollar bills on the sidewalk and didn't think about it. I don't think it was quite always quite that great. But, you know, th- things were just were just better, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And now we lock our doors, we lock windows, we we lock cars, we make sure everything's got all kinds of stuff. And sometimes some of us even get security systems to put put on our home. The security system, if you want to protect your family. It's time spent together as a family in devotionals. I'm not saying an hour every night of the week with daddy sitting down and saying, children, I would like for you now to listen as I expound the book of Ezekiel unto thee. Because I have no idea what I'd say anyway if that happened. I'm simply talking about a family sitting down for five or ten minutes in prayer, in a song, in opening God's word, in talking about moral things on a regular basis. You want to make your home secure from Satan. That's how you do it. Will he still tempt us from time to time? Oh, yeah. But if your family's sitting down doing that, it's really hard for him to tempt you right then, for sure. With a Bible laying open, or two or three or four Bibles laying open, looking at a particular passage of Scripture. And even if your children are grown and gone, you want to talk about something to improve your marriage. This is it. You spend time together. Just get a picture in your mind. Of your little family gathered around on a couch or around a table or by the fireplace with the Bible open and thinking about what a wonderful thing it will be to go to heaven together. That's how you secure your home. So we've got the structure. We've laid a foundation. We've laid the proper foundation, Jesus Christ. We've built four walls. We've made sure that we have those things around us that build love in our homes and make sure that we are doing what God would have us to do in our homes all the time. We put a roof on top so we can keep the enemies away through prayer. We've been taking the extra expense and putting a security system so our families are coming together and making sure. And you think, well, that's, that's all there is to it. There can't be any more. I mean, this has to be it. I mean, I'm not getting into making sure we have flooring and, and, and carpet and all that kind of stuff. But there is one more thing. And it is at some point you got to add a front door. Psalm 127 ends by telling us children are a heritage from the Lord. We live in a world that says that's just not true. Children are a tax exemption. Children are something that gets in the way. Children are something that keeps me from rising up the corporate ladder. Children are something that keeps me from my dreams. The Bible says children are a heritage, a gift, a treasure from God. And you remember Psalm 127 then goes on to tell us like like arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior are the children of one's youth. What is the implication of that? I'm aiming my children somewhere. 
for however long they are under my roof. I am pulling back that bowstring. And one of these days. They will walk out that front door. And while they better come back sometime. The relationship will never be the same. And when I let go of that bowstring. That's when we will see. Where was the foundation? When I let go of that bowstring, that's when we will see all that time of love, all that time of sleepless nights, all that time of prayer, all that time of joy. Yes, all that time of frustration. That's when we will see. What I've released into the world. Because you see. Everyone in here who has children, we're aiming them somewhere. We've got a target in mind somewhere. Our target better be a different door. Or maybe we should call it a gate. A gate that's made of pearl. If my only target is that my son becomes a great athlete or my daughter gets great grades in school, they can hit that target. And I'd be proud of them. That'd be nice. But my prayer every day is that when I get to that gate of pearl, that the most beautiful black-haired girl God ever put on this earth is standing there. And that one special adopted treasure is there. And that one of God's surprises is there. Not because I've done anything fantastic. But because through all the years... Of joy and frustration. I never forgot. No foundation. Can anyone lay. Than Jesus Christ. If you don't have kids at home. Trust me. We need you to listen to this lesson. Because we need your help. But if you do. Remember. You are aiming your children, somewhere. And some of the most difficult words you ever have to say is one of these days you got to let go. But your daily prayer better be this. Lord, give me what I need. So that when the other gate opens, though we are not married or given in marriage, I'll see them there. Is your home a Christian home? Are you building on that foundation of Christ? 
Are you aiming your children towards heaven? Are you aiming towards heaven? If not, you can change that. You can allow God to change that. If you'll come to him, always stand and sing to encourage you.